0: Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. It's hard to think of an individual who has been a bigger advocate for the Chicago tech and startup scene than Ezra Galston. When I began the process of putting together a podcast on the Chicago startup and VC ecosystem, I knew that Ezra would be one of the must-have guests. To be honest, I'm still in awe of our conversation and Ezra's passion for Chicago and entrepreneurship. Ezra's career is eclectic and deserving of its own podcast, but some of the highlights include time spent as a professional poker player an MBA from Chicago Booth, director of marketing at Card Runners Gaming, and a VC at Chicago Ventures. These experiences were all preludes to 2018 when Ezra and his team launched Starting Line. Throughout his investing career, Ezra has backed some of the biggest Chicago success stories, including M1 Finance, Chow Bus, Spot Hero, and Cameo. I cannot thank Ezra enough for taking the time to nerd out about the Chicago ecosystem with me. This is truly a special episode, and it also marks the first video podcast for Chicago Capital available now on YouTube. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Ezra Galson. Ezra Galston, thank you so much for hopping on the show. I cannot tell you how excited I am for this one. I don't think there's many people who've done more for the Chicago community to put the Chicago community on the map, maybe besides, you know, Michael Jordan. So it's truly a pleasure to speak with you today. I appreciate the kind of words. I don't think it's true at all and, and happy to talk through people who've had a far bigger
1: impact on Chicago than, than I have. I've just, been, I've just been blessed to ride the coattails of a couple of hardworking working entrepreneurs. That's about it. Thanks for having me, man. This
0: is cool. Yeah, Yeah, of course. I would love to first start by asking you, though, a simple question. You know, creator economy is on the rise. Passion economy is on the rise. Have you considered a side hustle as a poker coach? Because I'd be happy to be your first customer.
1: (laughs) Um, So no, uh, although I have been around that world for a while. My my, my first startup was a company called Card Runners that kind of before Udemy or Coursera existed, basically did that model for poker players. I'm um, actually started by two friends of mine out of their dorm room at University of Illinois, which is how I got to Chicago. And uh, I was their first employee. And, uh, you know, it was a similar model. It was basically, you know, it, it, they actually they, they had like a poker coaching tab. Um, so it's definitely coming back. And we're seeing models like that grow
0: in esports and in a bunch of other verticals. So yeah, it's cool. So it's fair to say that when you watch Casino Royale, you know what's going on? Uh, yeah, I think there's actually some inaccuracies in the in the scene. I can't recall exactly. I think a
1: card – I think there's basically a card that's played twice or something. I remember reading a scene about it. But, but the funny is my former roommate, David Paredes – he was a consultant for Molly's Game, the the movie all about Molly Bloom, and wrote the famous scene where the kind of a big fish in the game in LA kind of gets taken for a bunch of hands. He wrote the different hands that uh, ended up kind of uh, going down there. So that one at least was written by a real kind of true poker player, which was great. He, he That's helped amazing. him work out.
0: Yeah. Gonna say that's amazing the opportunity to help Aaron Sorkin on that script must have been incredible. Also yeah. amazing movie. But again, I had no idea what was going on. So I just have appreciation <laughs> for poker movies, but I have no idea what's happening. So yeah, I need to I need to sort of get on that at some point in my in my life. Yeah, my, uh, to- my
1: partner Ade is a big poker player. It's uh, We've got a lot of professional poker players invested in the fun. There, there's a lot of DNA here.
0: So. Yeah and I'd love to unpack a little bit more about starting line but I, at first you know your background like I said at the top you, you are pretty synonymous with the Chicago tech consumer ecosystem I'd love to hear how that relationship really began and where your love and passion for the c- city really you know comes from Yeah I mean so I moved
1: here in 2007 to join Card Runners, my friend's startup, uh, and just kind of never really left. Back then there was no tech scene whatsoever. I remember Taylor came into my office one day and said like some VC firms reached out to him and I was like, what does that mean? Um, As you know, 2007, 2008, uh, there was an article in the Tribune or something like that, right? Uh, So there was no real scene here. I did marketing back then and I didn't really have any peers. I remember like one time forgetting that we had a Facebook like campaign set up and it like ran for three months and I wasted a bunch of money. I mean, like there were no dashboards, right? You just man, kind of manage everything manually. But that's how I got to Chicago in the first place and kind of never left and started making making a bunch of angel investments and went to business school at the University of Chicago uh, booth. And I, I, I think when I, so, so I started interning at a VC firm called Chicago Ventures, where I ended up spending six and a half years Thankfully, when I was an intern, they, they promoted me at some point. But I remember I just, I loved hanging out with the young kids, like the 19-year-old kids, the 21-year-old kids. I mean, I was not that far apart in age. I was probably 26 at the time, maybe 27. And most of the VCs at that point, most of the investors, most of the funded companies were more kind of established, experienced entrepreneurs, you know, just kind of in a different age bracket. And so I think it just happened very organically. I hung out with the people that I wanted to. I hung out with the people that, that That I found to be intellectually compelling and curious. And I give my former partners a a ton of credit for just saying like, Ezra, you you go be you, you go do you. Um, But it happened very organically and it turned out that those types of people were typically building consumer businesses, which was my background as well with a bunch of poker and gaming businesses. So there wasn't a ton of thought that went into it other than just trying to surround myself with really interesting people who ended up doing really interesting things.
0: And whereabouts did you realize you wanted to strike out on your own and start your own fund and specifically focused on consumer investments and you know, the 99% of America when it comes to consumer investments? How did that sort of organically grow from that experience at CV?
1: Yeah. I mean, so, so the, the, the startup market was changing a lot in the... 2016, 27 timeframe. And it's continued to evolve since then. And and we're going to have to evolve to continue to be competitive in the market. What I saw was that there was so much latent consumer demand for new products and services that companies would basically kind of raise a, a financing with very, very little data or validation. But the moment they found any hint of product market fit, There was so much pent-up consumer demand for what they were doing that they would inflect very, very quickly. And I wanted to have a vehicle, a fund, where we could invest in those businesses before they were fully validated. So that was kind of insight number one. Insight number two was, you know, 2017 timeframe, uh, a lot of talk about what is a real American, uh, red states and blue states, who's a one percenter, who's a 99 percenter, and I thought the conversation was really, really interesting. I also continue to believe that we're all more similar than dissimilar and that you know everybody is aspirational. Everybody kind of wants to expand markets and, and have access to the things that everybody else has. But I just felt that being in Chicago, we just had an, a, a, an ear closer to the ground of who that typical American was going to be. And as I thought of what I wanted to kind of found the fund on, I looked at my best investments, my best performing investments ever, you know, whether that was uh, Spot Hero, M1 Finance, you know, whatever it may have been at the time. And they all had a commonality, which was they delivered kind of a premium product at a reduced cost. And that was kind of my unlock, which was like, hey, the, the best investments that I know how to make allow normal people to, leave, to live better lives at a cheaper cost. And that was kind of like the 99% thesis that we wanted to We wanted to really kind of start the fund around. So if that makes any sense to you, kind of number three, which was not kind of a founding thesis, but became apparent very, very early on, was that we live in a world now where whether it's entrepreneurship, celebritization, and everything in between no longer has geographic bounds with the phone, with a phone in the hand of every kind of teen and tween in the country anybody can kind of be whoever they want almost overnight. It's not quite as rosy, but, 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 but opportunity is now very much distributed. And so we wanted to plant another flag to say that, you know, if you are a 16-year-old entrepreneur in Omaha, in Topeka, in Pittsburgh, and you may not realize that there are people out there close by who kind of speak your language, we want to be that relatable resource for you. So those are kind of the three things we put together, if that makes any
0: sense. That's how we thought about it. I don't know. Time will, t- t- time will tell if that's a good
1: thesis. We're off to a good start.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's seemingly going well so far. I mean, you've been able to raise that second fund, um which congratulations, you guys raised, you know, a $30 million fund to back in April. Really exciting. Um, curious for you both those processes, raising Fund One and Fund Two, as a young guy in the Midwest, uh, you know, trying to make a name for yourself in the firm in consumer VC, what was that process like? Raising both of those funds, and I guess how has it evolved over the years from Fund One to Fund Two?
1: Yeah, look, raising money is never easy.
0: I don't think it's easy as an entrepreneur. I don't think it's
1: easy as a fund manager. It's like everything else, right? I think that there are a lot of entrepreneurs who, who see TechCrunch and. You know, it just, it, it looks so easy right now. Money is flowing. Everybody says there's never a better time to be entrepreneurs, but it's a game of haves and have-nots, right? The the companies that are clearly growing have no trouble raising money. And the companies that haven't validated what they are, are still trying to beg for believers who are high conviction in, in their crazy dreams. Starting a fund was was no different. I actually think starting a fund in Chicago may have been harder than starting it in other places. Hopefully someone will prove me wrong at some point. But when I went out to, to start... to to do starting line early 2018. I don't know if there were any sub 35 year old fund managers in the city of Chicago. I got laughed out of more rooms than, than I by people that I knew well, who were just like, you know, who said, don't think you can make it work. People that I made a lot of money for like every other entrepreneur. I had people who shook my hand, looked me in the eye and said, I'm in for X and then never returned another phone call or email ever again. I had same thing with kind of entrepreneurial leaders in the city that people look up to and who are on every award stage. Same thing. Shook my hand, looked me in the eye, uh, said, happy to support you and didn't return a call. But it's not a complaint. This happens to everybody who tries to raise money. And so I was privileged enough to be able to borrow a bunch of money to make two investments, one in a company called Cameo, the other in a company called Unchained Capital, um, Uh, it was not really my money I I borrowed money I mean I guess I borrowed against like our home and stuff so that's technically my money But, but, um, but borrowed a bunch of money four months later hadn't really raised a penny and people came calling for their capital back and there was nothing I can do So there was kind of one night where I kind of fell apart, had a complete nervous breakdown. And my wife picked me up off the floor and just said, you know, you quit your job to do this. Like, we're going to figure it out. And I give her all the credit. She basically wouldn't uh, stop until I made a list of every single person I could think of that might have a thousand dollars to write into the fund, um, and we ended up doing that. I, I did. I can't remember what the first close was. Maybe five or six million dollars was not a lot, and completely plateaued. You know, after that for a little while, and would basically went around trying to get any twenty-five thousand dollar check I could, and that ended up being another million or two, two, twenty-five thousand at a time. Again, I was blessed enough. There were a lot of entrepreneurs in the city of Chicago who respected me. The problem is that Chicago does not have a lot of liquid technology entrepreneurs. The people who are really willing to bet on young tech focused entrepreneurs are people like Matt Maloney at Grubhub who ended up coming in and writing a big check when the rest of the market hadn't caught on but that's because he made his wealth in tech and he understands how this world works right we need a lot more of him so it was it was a struggle um, super blessed that some of our early investments started working out but I, you know i think the good news is that having gone through that everybody says they can kind of empathize with entrepreneurs blah 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 but you know Almost lost my home, back was against the wall. I actually called my parents um, and said, hey, this is not going to (laughs) work. Like, I think there's danger for like your grandkids. Will you bail me out? They said no. You know, it was kind of one of those like growing up as a middle class kid. You just kind of assume your parents will always bail you out. And and they said no. I said, what about the grandkids? They said, well, make sure the grandkids have a roof over their heads. But like when it comes to bailing you out, like you made this decision, you left a good job that we weren't convinced you should have left and figured out. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have been in the same place and it just creates a big chip on your shoulder that you want to prove all the people wrong. I mean, I don't know why I'm going through this much, depth, but I remember pitching someone who I knew, I thought pretty well. And they said to me, tell me the one company you're most excited about that you've ever invested in. This was January, February 2018. I don't know. Uh, and I said, M1 Finance. And they spent the next 45 minutes berating me about how M1 Finance had no differentiation. The product was terrible, and no economic model, and would never be a business. And their CIO called me afterwards and basically said, "Hey, kind of the patriarch says you suck and your fund sucks." And you know that company is now a unicorn and one of the fastest growing fintechs in, in the country. And and it's not you know people are allowed to be wrong. Everybody's allowed to be wrong. But but I have learned that when people put their you know convictions on the line to tell us what their dreams are, that we're going to do the best we can to treat them with respect. Like everybody makes mistakes. We we, we botch some follow-ups here or there. And, you know, we, we we promise we'll make an intro that sometimes, you know, we botch. But at the end of the day, I, I do believe that we respect everybody that we have a conversation
0: with. First off, unbelievable story. And to me, it seems like when you know there's so many there's so much capital in the market today and vc money itself it seems like has become commoditized but i think the the founding story of your fund is itself a differentiator i think when you're pitching founders on why working with starting line it seems to me like you guys have really been in their shoes you understand the risks you understand the adversity you know at least to a degree but i think you mentioned the topic of conviction and and I kind of would love to talk about some of the differentiations of starting line, because I think it's a really unique place. And I think one of the, things that makes it unique is you all seem to make, to me at least, pretty concentrated bets, which is, you know, somewhat uncommon, but also really admirable, I think admirable, I think. You know, it you guys are leading rounds and you're putting a million to a million a quarter a million and a quarter into these companies and, and you're doing five, six a year. And it doesn't seem like you're taking a spray and pray, you know, methodology at all. So I'm just curious how today, how you sort of build to that level of conviction and why that you know, philosophy is so important to you today. Yeah. I mean, look, uh,
1: I think every good investor that I know ultimately kind of has followed a fairly concentrated investment mandate. I think it's how you create multiple rather than diversification. So again, I built the fund that when I started, I was about I 33 when I, when I kind of left the starting line. So the, the question in my mind is like, how do I create a multiple of wealth, not preserve wealth. And so that has kind of always underpinned our kind of concentrated focus. When it comes to conviction, actually, I'll admit that it's never been harder to have conviction um, because the markets are moving so fast and there's so much chaos and so much noise. It's just something we're struggling with right now, to be honest. We haven't completely abandoned like the only big checks, but we're, we're seven months into the new fund and we've written three small checks. Which, is, which we don't plan to do more of because, again, it's like most of those are looking really good. It's like, well, bah, crap, why didn't we write a bigger check? So I think we're learning from that experience. But it, it's the hardest thing to do in the current market. The only solution that we've found, which has been really tough during COVID, is to build relationships with people over a long period of time. And the moment they end up wanting to do something, I'm just kind of writing them a check on who they are, the problem is that that is not a very differentiated strategy. Lots of uh, smart people can also kind of sniff out other smart people. And, you know, when that person wants to do something, those rounds get very, very oversubscribed very, very quickly. That's number one. We, the, the largest check we've written out of Fund 2 so far was actually, it wasn't a cold inbound, but like didn't know the team very well. But, you know, one of the questions we always ask any founding team is kind of like, what's your secret and how did you earn it? And it was, it's an auto business. We haven't announced it yet. So, so kind of not uh, saying too much here, but they uh, were able to, they were able to communicate with strong clarity what their secret was, uh, where it came from, how they earned it. And then we bent and did diligence over a period of about four to six days with, I don't know, 20 prospective customers or vendors, whatever it was. And we're just able to validate that that secret was true. And it wasn't an unknown secret. It was just a super under-leveraged, under-operationalized secret. And so that was a company that we built super, super high conviction. And I do think as a fund, though, things we do differently are, I don't think we've ever had a partner meeting. One entrepreneur that we invested in texted me two weeks ago and said, hey... Uh, we may actually take in a little bit more money because we're seeing that we have a whole lot of leverage from this or that. Uh, and I said, great, give me two hours, texted him back and said, we'll take it all. And they called us and, you know, or myself and my partner Ade, we actually, we were doing a meeting with them later that afternoon said, you've just got to productize this. Like everybody else says, okay, like, why don't you show us the latest data? Why don't you bring us into, into the room, you know, and we'll have a conversation I said, you just got to productize this. But it wasn't that complicated for us. The question was just, we have X dollars of exposure to these people that we think the world of, like, don't we want more exposure to them? Isn't this ultimately a game where you just want as much much exposure as possible to the most extraordinary entrepreneurs in the world? And so that was a really easy question to answer. It's like, how, how are we going to have a meeting over this? It's not meeting worthy. Like it's not even phone call worthy. A entrepreneur <laughs> just reached out to me earlier and said, yeah, you know, here's what we're thinking about. Give me a call uh, if you want to discuss this. Or happy to have a call to chat about it further. And I said, I would never waste your call on something like this. You know 100, you know 100 times more about the market than, than I do. I just want to make sure we're not getting distracted. But like... It's your business and you're the expert anyway. But, but yeah, I, I think that we try to make decisions based on conviction, not kind of group consensus or group think I've told each of our partners, Haley, Ade, and Scott, like when you have conviction about a business, let's invest. But I'm going to ask you if you only get to make one investment this year, is this going to be the deal you want to do? And often, often the answer to that push is like, nah, I guess not. Right. Right. But sometimes the answer is yes, and when the answer is yes, we make the investment.
0: Period. And post investment at Starting Line, what are some of the ways in which you and the rest of your team attempt to help your companies win, or at least you know get to product market fit, or or get those first thousand customers? I saw on your website you mentioned an example of you know buying thousand buying thousands of the product yourself in order to, to get it off the ground. And it seems like almost taking a page out of the Paul Graham, doing things that don't scale at the very beginning to get some you know traction and liquidity. But just curious to hear what sort of methods you guys have, have used in the past to try and roll up your sleeves and help those portfolio companies.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, we're certainly some of the biggest customers of our own companies. I mean, I bought Infinite Cameos in the early days. I own f- virtually every... For nearly every pot pan knife pizza pan that made in cookware has ever made we actually made a fun two investment into us a, into a, a streetwear marketplace called trill um trill and they basically it's kind of like etsy for streetwear lots of independent designers it's a really cool concept and i said to him contingent of our investment is that we can pay you you know It'll end up being 25 to 50k to build us an entire line of streetwear that we can sell on our website, give to our LPs, entrepreneurs, et etc. Like we're getting our own custom shoe, like custom dunk built, which is like super super cool. But anyway, like that's real revenue to them, you know. Like it's an early stage business, like dropping 25k in their pockets, like that's that's real money. Anyway, so we do try to be some of the biggest customers of of our own investments as much as possible. Certainly, uh, Unchained Capital, which was our second investment, I have taken uh, a lot of loans through their platform. In fact, I even like partially because. I don't want to sell my Bitcoin. Um, things like that. So we, we 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 aggressively use the products that that we invest in. It if we're not in love, we're not going to use it. When, when it comes to rolling up sleeves, I think most VCs overstate what they're going to actually do. So we do two things really really well. One, we have all been operators and all been a part of fast growing businesses, and so there's just a level of like focus, prioritization, and experience. I don't think we ask questions that are all that interesting. We basically ask the same kind of three questions all the time, but hearing it from us um, when there's no one else kind of barking it in your ear, chirping it in your ear, I do think makes a difference. Those questions are like, where are we constrained? The questions are like, what are our top three priorities? What are our top three priorities right now? Like, and are we getting distracted? And, and, and I think that, you know, if, if we ask those questions on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, basis um, the companies we invest in are far more likely to find product market fit faster by avoiding all the kind of noise in the market that's number one number two is we just have the most extraordinarily diverse investment team that i've ever seen or been a part of my my um like you look down the stack of our partners Uh, Haley was early at Trunk Club and helped kind of spin up their analytics department. When they decided to do a a men's uh, fashion launch, she kind of raised her hand to help kind of lead that initiative. So when it comes to like analytics and biz ops, Like she is very much in the weeds with with a lot of our investments and her background at Trunk Club and then her business after that called Mac and Mia that had a kind of an asset acquisition by Stitch Fix makes her super, super, super relevant and authentic in retail, commerce, etc., Scott Holloway was one of the first employees, number 10 at Instacart, launched I mean, 30, 40 markets for them, then ran the Chicago office for Flexport before moving over to, to Foxtrot. And so when it comes to like geoscaling markets, go, uh, geoscaling marketplaces, kind of go-to-market strategy, there are few people in the country with more experience than, than he does. And, and Ade... Has experience. He built one of the fastest ever-growing social networks called ForumSpring. It was the first kind of a non-social network. You're, you and I are both way too old for it. Super popular among like high schoolers in I don't know 20, 2009. 2010 and went zero to 50 million daily actives, you know, in a year and ended up not working out. Uh, And he moved back to Indianapolis and started a, a, a software business called Formstack that was acquired. But, but again, like when it comes to mobile product, when it comes to viral growth loops, social like incentives and dynamics, there are few people in the world who've seen more than he has from the inside going kind of zero to 50 million back down to close to zero and trying to like, you know, save anything you can in the middle, like kind of has seen it all. So it's such a diverse team that to bring that level of voices around the table, I do think adds a lot of value to, to the, to, to the journeys that we are trying to help accelerate.
0: And I think it would also to eliminate or at least reduce the chance of like bias creeping in where, especially consumer, sometimes I think it can be challenging because you can look at a consumer product and maybe say, well, that. This isn't for me. Or this isn't for any of my friends or my family. So I don't get the viability of it. But to your point, the more you can diversify any team, but a consumer team in that sense, it can only be beneficial when you guys are screening these investments. Is that kind of your sense of it as well? Yeah. Yeah. I, I still remember the early days of raising the fund. I'm always too transparent.
1: The early days of raising the fund, I don't know, maybe we were nine months in. And, and I finally got in front of kind of a big, you know, check writer that was very interested. Uh, they ended up passing because they called me and, and among other pieces of feedback, told me that I wore a hoodie to the investment committee pitch. And I said, if you guys are going to pass on everybody who wears a hoodie like into your room, like, it's going you know, to be a long time before you see great returns. Anyway, but not here nor there, you learn from everybody. And I think I learned a lesson there. Anyway, uh, the point is they asked me what kept me up at night. And my answer was that 90 plus percent of the opportunities we're seeing are from founders who look like me and, see, and, and talk like me and sound like me that's just not going to be a recipe for success and we've tried to build a really diverse firm from the ground up i do think that diversity of voices helps it adds diversity of networks frankly if there is any kind of downside that i've seen it also makes you your like like your harshest critic so for instance like my background in like poker and gaming like it's really hard for me to get excited about anything in poker, gaming, gambling. Like, you know it so well and you you just kind of assume the worst, etc. So, you know, there's certainly benefits. There's certainly detriments. But overall, it's, it's a big win.
0: And something that's new with the fund, I think, this time around is the Starting Line Scout Fund. Um, just curious if you could touch on that, sort of what that entails, and uh, yeah, sort of what the goal is with the Scout Fund.
1: Yeah, well, good timing because we're actually kind of going to relaunch it. Well, I don't know when this will air, but we're relaunching it publicly this week because we just didn't do a good job getting it out there the first time around. We were kind of really excited about it. We got a couple dozen applications, but the more we've kind of some to people, some free press from Chicago Capital right here. There you go. Great. I love it. But the more we kind of got out into the market, Recently, that post COVID, I just realized a lot most people didn't know about it. So yeah, look, my, my whole theory is that Chicago has a large number of enormously talented engineers, product managers, builders, sales folks, whatever it may be, and that we just don't have a culture of starting things. I see it all the time. You know, every deck that we see functionally out of, you know, out of San Francisco is, well, so-and-so was whatever, not even an early employee, employee 25,000 at Uber, DoorDash, Coinbase, whatever it is. And they're spinning out and their friends have all gotten liquid and are rich. And, you know, they're raising 2 million and the first 750 is accounted for from their kind of wealthy liquid, you know, local friends, um, it just creates a huge flywheel of innovation. And we have nothing like that in Chicago. If if there is any, you know, one one of the worst things that's happened to the city, I don't think it's necessarily anybody's fault exactly, is that even our successes in general have not had enough of an employee equity base where people got really, really wealthy. The number of people who've kind of aggressively paid it forward in the city, meaning, you know. Saw nine figures worth of wealth creation from a tech startup and aggressively put that money to work. One or two hands. But that's at the high level. The, underneath that is like, there haven't even been enough people who've seen seven figures that are comfortable writing $25,000 checks. And so I am convinced at about the highest level of conviction that I've ever had about anything in my entire professional career that if we can arm really smart young people working in our local tech companies with capital um, that does not bankrupt them. Ideally, we give it to them fee free and give them upside that they will invest in their friends and encourage their friends to spin out that when they're going out to dinner at night and it's, Hey, I've been thinking about this idea, but I don't think I can leave this job or, you know, I'm about to have a kid or whatever it is say, Hey, we could put together 500K to 750K for you, and you and three friends can go and work on this for one to two years. That's an amazing value prop, and nothing like that exists. We can't solve it. We're a $30 million fund. I have spoken to some of the powers that be in Chicago, and there's interest in solving it. I don't think that they, I don't think it's priority number one right now. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna take 2% of our fund, $600,000, and we're gonna go put it in the hands of somewhere between six and 12 people who fit that profile, who work at local tech companies um, and have friends that they think are interested in starting businesses. And we're going to be totally hands off. They write the checks, we wire the money, they do all the handholding and work. I mean, we're, we're not involved in any real way other than the feedback we got from the first set of applicants was that we don't want to just spend your dollars. We want to learn, we want to learn how to become better investors And so we want some education. So that was kind of one of the asks that we saw from the early applicants is, can you also put together some like course in
0: education, maybe do like monthly check-ins? So that's one of the things that we've been working through is, can we provide that? And the hope is yes. So I guess the timing of this is interesting. Is this an initiative you think could have taken place five, 10 years ago? Or do you think we're at an inflection point in the startup community's growth here that sort of now is the perfect or the right time for something like this? I think it could have
1: taken place years ago, I don't know, about 10 years ago, could have taken place five years ago, maybe on a smaller scale, but the time is definitely right. The time is definitely right right now. It's very, very clear to me. You look at a business like Chowbus that's hired 100 to 200 people locally, and I sometimes scour kind of the LinkedIn's at night of like who they've hired on the product side, on the edge side, on the data science side. These people look amazing. I don't even know where they're finding them. M1 Finance, same thing. Project 44, same thing. You just kind of go down the list. You know, my, my, my goal is not to ruin these companies by pulling their best people out. That said, I, I've never seen more interesting talent consolidated in the city of Chicago that is experiencing high growth, um, high acceleration startup experience. It just seems like it's a really, really, really good recipe for success to convince whether that's 1%, 2%, 5% of those people to get really really creative, dream big and have some capital that they're comfortable losing in order to build products that change the world. And that that's my hope at least. Good for my business and hopefully good for them as well.
0: You mentioned there was not a lot of under 35 year old fund managers when you out, you went out to raise your own fund, especially, you know, in Chicago. Curious as to why you think that is or what about the ecosystem sort of has Precluded some of the younger, more successful people from striking out on their own and trying to raise funds. Uh, I'm just wondering if there's a macro sort of, you know, meta statement on the on the Midwest or in the ecosystem there.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to say here. The good news is that's changing. You've got Victor and Mike at M25. You have got Samara Chingwana. I get introduced now to you've got the entire crew at Long uh, at Long Jump. By the way, that is about most excited I've ever been about anything for what it's worth
0: because I. I, I I remember, whatever, it's been a long time coming. We've got them on the podcast in two weeks, actually. So I'm looking forward to that. Fantastic. They're extraordinary operators, extraordinary people, uh, just so good. So
1: the good news is that it's all changing. The, the history is, the history is as is, is, is follows, kind of what I suggested earlier. There are not a lot of technology entrepreneurs or executives who've made their wealth uh, in the city of Chicago. So when it comes to going out to raise money, your cohort of people who understand you, relate to you, are able to believe in you at the earliest stages because people believed in them at the earliest stages. And that's a very, very small pool of capital. I was blessed to find one in Matt Maloney. And there are others out there, but, but not many. For our second fund, a gentleman by the name of Aaron Rankin, who is the CTO and co-founder of Sprout Social – sought us out almost and 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 was, you know, very aggressive in making something work in, in, in investment in the fund. But again, Sprout Social, Grubhub, like you can kind of count on one hand, like the number of publicly traded local companies that were technology based, right? And, you know, like those people are putting checks to work, but we need more of them. So then you've got the issue of, well, there's a lot of wealth in Chicago. Why aren't they writing checks into venture funds? And the truth is, is that Many of them have invested in Chicago-based venture funds over you know, a period of a decade or so, and frankly not seen the returns that they would have wanted to get them excited about the asset class and or the world is getting smaller and they now have access to venture funds in San Francisco, New York, uh, whatever it may be that are far bigger brand names and far larger kind of entrepreneurial ecosystems. So if you're kind of building your network here, and you're doing a lot of the deep work here in terms of trying to build a reputation and a personal brand. And the tech entrepreneurs don't have enough money to really write you big checks. And the you know high net worth individuals, family offices, whatever, are not super interested in venture uh, or are just going to allocate their money to, you know, bulge bracket funds that take in a billion dollars a year. And they're going to write a ten million dollar check there. It doesn't leave a whole lot left for the young kid who knocks on the door and says, "Hey, I've got a you know a chair and a dream and trying to build something." Because the question is, how are you going to win in Chicago? How are you going to be differentiated? You're too small for us even to write a check. You know all those sorts of things. Again, this is not not alone. The the world is filled right now with emerging managers who are all kind of struggling with a lot of these same questions. The good news is is that there are now more than there there are more kind of $10,000 to $250,000 check writers, especially here in Chicago than I've ever seen before. Whether it is like some startup liquidity, put some money in Tesla, you put some money in Bitcoin, whatever it may be. There is so many checks that if you use a platform like AngelList or, or I think, you know, Cardo's gonna have an offering soon. I'm encouraging a lot of my friends to try to raise two, three, five, three, five, $10 million funds, $50,000 at a time, to be able to go put some more money to work. So the good news is that is changing very quickly in Chicago. And the hope is that those people who today are $100,000 check writers in five years will be $1 million check writers. And that would just be a step change difference in our trajectory globally.
0: Yeah, and it's just all about getting that flywheel going and, and adding more speed to it. So one thing I'm curious about as well, you know, on the topic of returns, VC by nature is ambiguous there's these long feedback loops and th- and that's one of the great challenges of it but for somebody like you who you know you have a cameo in your portfolio you you've had some success early on in your sort of venture capital career does the feedback loop just get a little bit easier to deal with over time does the ambiguity get a little bit easier over time or is that always still a challenge for you as a venture capitalist i think it's always a challenge I'm super insecure about my skills in this job. You know, I
1: see my friends running circles around me in San Francisco, in Los Angeles. Cameo is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of business, potentially a once-in-a-career kind of opportunity. It's a great business. What what kept me up at night for a while was, you know, was our first fund a one-hit wonder. Did we have, you know, one one winner and, you know, the rest would not really live up? So I feel better. Night, felt I feel better now. I mean, are fairly public about this. Our first fund right now is I think about a five and a half times gross return in three years on paper. Cameo is about half of that, but the the rest of our investments are now half of that as well, which means that they're still the biggest breakout, but we've sourced a bunch of really really good winners. Whether that's kind of Made in Cookware, Unchained Capital, a business here in town called Clover that's doing phenomenally well, Suna, which is a kind of a next-gen photo photo, photo studio in, in Denver, Minneapolis. We found some amazing, amazing investments. Um, that said, does it change the calculus? No, I'm still super insecure. That there's, you know, I read I don't know Term Sheet and Deal Book and TechCrunch just like everybody else, and it seems like. companies are growing faster than ever. And you look at your own portfolio and you you kind of think, are we doing the best that we can? What I feel good about is that I, is that either myself or our partners deeply believe in every investment that we've ever made. We've never made an investment and then kind of like regretted it the next morning, you know, like said yes out of pity or something like that's not how we operate. We've been super high conviction, everything we do so that if it works out, it doesn't work out at least we have a great time with the entrepreneurs, you know, Building things. And and that's, I think, the pleasure of the job. But do I get less insecure? No. If there's anything that makes me hopeful, it's that we've now backed two entrepreneurs who spun out of Cameo Greg Kaplan, who was interim CMO and started a company called Spot Meetings here in town, which is a product to get you off Zoom and get you into walking meetings. Uh, And then another one, which is a stealth company that doesn't want to be talked about yet. But that makes me really excited that we. We're a high conviction investor in a business, sat on their board, sit on their board, uh, and that their early employees who are phenomenal kind of came to us, you know, and said, hey, we're going to do X or Y, we'd be interested in you ha- having you on our cap table. That gives me a little bit of confidence moving forward that we treat entrepreneurs and teams well. And so the teams will come back to us as they do new things. But do I stay up at night worrying
0: like that we'll find another unicorn? Yeah, just like everybody else in this business. No, I think that's makes total sense. And I, I also think it's fascinating. You guys place such an emphasis on transparency and on just being completely honest. and even so much so that you can view most of your quarterly LP letters on your guy's website, which I, I think first off made preparing for this podcast a whole lot easier. And second off, I, <laughs> I think it's just a, a really cool component of starting line. But looking out in our remaining time, you know, looking out towards twenty twenty one, One area I know that is a a little bit of focus for you guys is what you deem sort of next great inflation. You had a great tweet where you said, you know, in the last 12 months, everybody magically became an epidemiologist. And uh, in the next 12, they will transform into a macro. um, You know what? Macroeconomist. I knew I was going to mess up epidemiologists when I said that. And I messed (laughs) up macroeconomist, which is just embarrassing. So I apologize. You're good. I, I would love it if you could unpack that for us and just what you view as the next green inflation, and if it's already here?
1: Yeah, look, I'm
0: not an I'm not a macro economist. I don't know if I'm right at all.
1: It, it was so two things were clear to me. One, so I kind of like you know those like charts, like you know, uh, if yes, then go here; if no, then go here. Right? Question is, if you print six trillion dollars of money and infuse it into a system that had eighteen, sorry, uh, yeah, had eighteen trillion to start, so you've kind of increased the, the capital base by a third. Should there be an effect? So either yes or no. And most rational people say yes. There are some rational people who say we don't know, which is a totally reasonable answer. Uh, and then there are some irrational people who say no, there will be no impact. And if there's no impact, then we should just turn everybody into a millionaire or a billionaire and you know, move along, right? Um, so theoretically, there should be an effect, uh, an impact. And if there's an impact, the question is what will it be? Uh, again, I'm not the world's loudest drum banger on this. My first kind of insight was you know, trying to repair our shed nine months ago, and the lumber prices had already doubled. That was one of kind of the first commodities to, to go up. But what there appears to be is a lot of money in the system, a huge amount of consumption. You see supply chains breaking everywhere. I mean, you functionally can't buy anything right now. And so the question is, is that a supply chain shock, COVID-related? Or is that systemic by the fact that we put a lot more money into the system there's just a whole lot more consumption. So again, there, there's two sides to the coin. You know, you can look at some research which, said, which, which says the savings rate is actually going up, which means people are not putting all this money back into the system. They're saving it. That's interesting. Uh, you can look at the other side of the coin, which says that basically every commodity price on earth has gone up by 30% to 100%. And the ones that haven't gone up are the stuff that we as consumers typically feel firsthand, like the cost of a box of Cheerios, in which the inputs may be going up a lot, even if the outputs yet haven't totally materialized. So it's one of the things we're thinking about. To, to us, it is the chance of a great inflation is, I can't think of a bigger 99% issue that impacts real people. If you're a billionaire and your spending power goes down, seems like a big issue because you can make less investments, whatever it is, and there is an economic impact to that, but you are not going to be able to not afford you know food, the, the, the lifestyle you're you're used to for the 99 percent strikes us as, as a huge issue for the 99 percent right now if you're trying to make any home repair and lumber is up 250 percent if you're trying to go on a vacation and gas prices are up eighty percent right like you can just kind of go through the stack commodity food prices are up materially and the cost of going to the grocery store will, will go up a lot again the question is, is this is this a short-term thing or, or a long-term thing I, I don't know uh, my personal belief, belief is that if you infuse six trillion dollars, seven trillion, eight trillion into a system, it shouldn't have a good impact. It should have a negative impact. That's I just that just seems like basic logic. But you know, I hope we're wrong. But either way, we're very interested in trying to find solutions that help real people kind of hedge against that. Whether that is with additional earnings, synthetic protection, whatever it may be, in the event that we are right and it has a really big impact on the 99. percent Hope we're wrong. But our job is to bet on asymmetric opportunities. And certainly, let's say it's a 5% chance that it happens, but we find products that you know help a vast majority of the 99%. That would be an enormous amount of value creation 5% of the time, which would fit our mandate from a fund perspective.
0: So anyway, that's how we're thinking about it. I, I saw a. Uh, I don't know if this tweet was real, but I heard Chipotle prices were up three and a half percent. or they're considering raising prices three and a half percent. So I think that's going to get everybody's attention. But that also could have just been uh, somebody messing around on Twitter. I would love three and a half percent sounds like a bargain
1: in this ecosystem. So. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I think if they raise it too much for like Chipotle is where we draw the line. I think we can't. I mean, we could have inflation everywhere else, but just for God's sake, leave Chipotle out of this. Ezra, I would love yeah, to hear burritos in, for sure. They got us through COVID. They're going to get us through the next inflation. It's going to be fine. Um, Curious in our remaining time, just about some thought leaders, some of your favorite resources or people who you look up to in the VC space or who you're sort of following today, who's putting out great content that you would recommend? That is a good question. I've
1: actually, as I've become older and more paranoid, I've stopped consuming a lot of VC content so that we can think more independently the people that I look up to and put on a pedestal continue to be some of the world's great investors like Bill Gurley. I'm far more interested at this point in watching what great investors are doing and trying to infer some of the rationale from that. You look at a firm like Andreessen Horowitz right now that is writing as many series A checks early as I've ever seen into high potential consumer businesses. There, there's a bit of game theory at play there as well from the perspective of if you work at one of Andreessen's competitors that so Andreessen clearly gave the green light to their partners and just said anything that you like that you think is high potential write a 20 million dollar check so if you work at one of their competitors that does not have that green light and your partners are going to ask you is this your one deal of the year you got to be really really high conviction to say yes on that Whereas a firm like Andreessen that's doing a lot of Series A checks, all really interesting businesses. Are they the one of the year for most funds? I don't know. But for Andreessen, if the green light is just write it into anything that kind of meets a bar of X or Y, that gives them a massive advantage in the market. Because while your fund is off, you know, doing a bunch of diligence and trying to develop conviction, and you're a little unsure, so you're asking your partner, like, Reasons already said yes. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about what I'm seeing in the market and trying to understand some of the game theory going on right now from people smarter than me. In terms of like who I follow, uh, man, I don't know. You know, I actually think that the quality of content has gone down substantially. I think the market has gotten so chaotic that just everybody's busy and there's not as much great content being produced. Samuel Shaw used to you know, put out something every week. It's probably down to one or two times, you know, a year at this point. Um, on From my own side, I used to produce a lot of content and hopefully will in the future. But my time right now is better spent, you know, assessing a lot of the amazing opportunities in front of us rather than waxing poetic uh, about, you know, something that may or may not matter. But it's kind of where I'm at right now is I'm trying to learn a lot more from my friends uh, who are a stage, kind of a life stage ahead of me or or a career stage ahead of me uh, rather than just kind of reading content. And that's probably what I would advocate for anybody interested in this business or even on the founder side or find people kind of one round ahead of you, so to speak, who've been through it and like you for whatever reason, will let you kind of ride their coattails for whatever
0: reason, ask questions and pester a little bit and be annoying and, all those good things. So, awesome advice, Ezra. I definitely gonna take that to heart. Thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. We really appreciate Cannot wait to have you back. Amazing. No, super glad to be here. My pleasure. Hope this comes out well. Uh, happy to do it anytime. Awesome. Ezra, take care. Thank you. Hey. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group and please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.